0: There's an author by the name of Philip Yancey, and um, he's famous. He's written multiple books. He has a great book on grace, and he was telling the story in an article in Christianity Today. He was telling the story about how when he was in high school, he used to love to play chess, and and he was one of those geeky nerds that instead of hanging out in the athletic field with the cool people or, or over here with all the... Um, great, fantastic musicians, or over in the volleyball thing with the wonderful volleyball player, that's my kids who are in high school, um, he was playing chess. Instead, he was one of those nerds that just kind of hung out and played chess, and he, he, he thought he became really good, he thought, you know, because he was beating all the other high school students, and um, then after high school, life got busy, he went to college, and he kind of stopped playing chess. Well, one time he was in Chicago about 20 years later, and he had the opportunity and he started talking to somebody who was a master chess player. And he thought, oh, this would be great. This is the opportunity I've always wanted to, to play a master chess player. And so the guy agreed, and, and Philip Yancey was just really, really surprised that no matter what move Philip made, the guy had a good counter move, and the guy beat him every single time. And whether it was it, and the guy could beat him, or whether it was an unconventional strategy, I'm just going to move everybody to the left, the guy always was able to figure it out, And and beat him in chess. And, And Philip ultimately was just amazed at how the master chess player was so much more aware of the movement of the playing field than he was. Even though he thought he knew how to play the game. So he draws this conclusion. He goes, I wonder if that's kind of what we are like to God. Sometimes we think we know what's going on, and perhaps, perhaps we, we, we make this move, and we think that, that God's not in control. But God is like the master chess player, and he knows all of the steps in front of us. He knows what's going to happen. He knows, he knows the moves, and, and nothing takes and, and breaks. God knows where we're going, and he knows what we're doing. And so I say that because we're in the book of Genesis, where the sovereignty of God is evident in a dramatic, profound way. So I'm going to want you to turn with me. The Genesis chapter, we'll start in chapter 44, and as we get to chapter 44, we're concluding a little bit of what we looked at last week, and that is Judah. Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and, and we saw the transformation in his heart last week, and so he's about ready to um, go up to his brother Joseph, who he doesn't know is his brother, and say, take me as your slave and let my brother Benjamin go. And so the verse says this, speaking, and it says, Now then, please, Judah, to his brother Joseph, who is the governor over all of Egypt, who is second in command to Pharaoh, who, who has right now, has them completely befuddled and fooled, and they don't know what or who he is. And so Joseph, I mean, Judah is pleading for his brother Benjamin's life. Please, let your servant, that's me, let... Your servant remain here as my lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come to my father twenty two years before that speech, Judah was with his brothers at another event it was a it was a selling of Joseph into slavery. And the last thing that was on Judah's mind was was what's going to happen to dad. What is dad going to think? What was on Judah's mind is, hey, if we kill him, we get nothing. But if we sell him, we all get a piece of the action. So let's go ahead and sell Joseph to the slavery. And, and, and we. in fact, in fact, they came up with a scheme to rip the coat up and, and take it to the dad. They didn't care at all what was going on in dad's life. They only cared what was in it for their life. Now, 22 years later, Judah has a change in heart. Judah really does care about what is going on in his dad's life. But Judah changed. Joseph sees that there's a change in Judah. And we're going to look at that change today. And and so this is what Joseph says. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before his attendants. And he cried, Have everyone leave the room! Get out of here! Everybody, except for these guys, everybody out! They cleared the room. And here's Joseph in his Egyptian regalia... Alone with his brothers, and his brothers don't know what's going on. And so he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard it. Imagine this grown man just weeping and wailing, and 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 you don't know what's going on, you're just watching and you're paying and you're going, This man has just gone stark, raving mad. We don't know who he is. And then Joseph said to his brothers, is my father still living? Imagine the, the jaw drop at that moment. Is my father still living? Who are you? What are you talking about? And and, and instead, but his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. I am Joseph. I am Joseph. Is my father still living? Wouldn't that just cause your mouth to drop? Wouldn't just go ah? And then then you would start to begin to think about that. Uh oh, he's Joseph. This isn't good. And so this is exactly what happens. Joseph calls his brother a little closer to me, they say. And, and the brothers have to come a little closer to him. And when they had done so, he goes, I am your brother, the one you sold as a slave to Egypt. Imagine the room. Imagine the tension. Imagine the brothers. They don't know what Joseph is thinking at that moment. And to the brothers, to the brothers, from their perspective, this is a very, very bad thing, right? You sold this kid to slavery 22 years ago. And now what is this kid going to do? And now what is going to happen? I'm your brother, Joseph. Surprise! You're in trouble. You know, that's what they might be thinking. See, Joseph has the power. He They're all guilty, and they've all been caught. The brothers stand before Joseph. All, they're guilty. They've been caught. How does he have the power Well, he's already put them in jail for three days. He already just randomly, based upon his whim, said, put them in jail for three days. Let them see what it's like in jail for three days. And three days later, he, ah, we'll get out of the jail and we'll send them on their way with their grain. He already just did that because he's Joseph and he could. He already imprisoned Simeon because he could and kind of held him hostage. And no one could question him. He had the power. He had the authority. He had the right. He he had the, that was his position. He could do that. Who knows? We don't know how long he was in Judah. It was long enough for the family to eat all the grain. We know that Judah said, hey, I could have come back and forth twice already. We know that Joseph has all of the power that he needs. He not only has all the powers, but he has all the evidence he needs against them. He personally knows their great sin, right? He was there. He was the object of their great sin. And, and he knows, and he just reminded them of it. I am Joseph, the one you sold to slavery in Egypt. Get it? He's there, and, 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 and he, he absolutely knows their guilt. He knows their shame. He knows what's in front of them. And then he has the right. He has the position to punish them. They could be accused of stealing. Remember when they left for the first time, and they went in the bag, and all of a sudden they found gold? I mean, they found their silver in their bag? They could be accused of stealing. Remember the second time they left, they left. Um, the assistant went to go chase them down and they found that silver goblet, the divination cup, inside of Benjamin's bag? They could be accused of stealing. And yeah, it's a setup, and yeah, it's fraud, but, but the brothers don't know this. They could have gone to jail for life. They could be executed. They could be killed, because Joseph has the power and the authority and the right to punish them. This is how they stood before their Lord. They're they're saying, be your slave, my Lord. They're now bowing down. They're now calling him Lord. And he says, and they're guilty. They're shameful. And they're condemned. They're just standing there. They're quaking in their boots. They don't know what's going on. They don't know how to respond, do they? They're just there. And here's the truth for us, church. That's how we... Stand in front of our Lord. That's exactly how we stand in front of our Lord. We we stand guilty. We stand shameful. We stand condemned. There's a man named Paul. He wrote a book to a Roman church. Paul at one time tried to prevent the church from ever existing. And so he was hunting down. And then he met Jesus Christ, the one he didn't believe in. He met him on the road to Damascus. And then he became a church planter. He became something he tried to squash. Paul's writing to a church in Rome and hopes that one day he can get there. He's giving them some good theological understanding. At the beginning of that book, and that letter that he writes to the Roman church, he he talks about the sinful condition of man. And he says that, you know what? They have rejected God, and God gave them over, gave them over to their sinful desires. He absolutely just gave them over to their sinful desires. Not all that. he He gave them over to their shameful lusts. And he gave them over to their um depraved mind. Their lust, their thinking. Their, their heart always bent towards evil, and he gave them over there. Their thinking was was always stinking, and so he gave them over to their bad thinking, their depravity, and he gave them over to their desires. Their heart, mind, and spirit. He gave them over and and people just wandered around in a sinful condition. And so Paul talks about the the, if you will, the Gentile world like that And then he makes a case that says it's not just them, it's us. We are like that too. All of us, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us stand before God. There's none that are righteous. There is not one person who is righteous. Not even one. All of us stand before God guilty, shameful, and condemned. We're guilty of our sin. Jesus, talking to his followers, says, you know, if a if you've ever been mad, angry at your brother, you're guilty of murder. Jesus, talking to his followers, says, you know, if, if you've ever looked at a woman lustfully, you're guilty of adultery. Jesus raises the bar as to what it's like to be a holy God and what it's like to be a sinful person. And, and all of us, all of us have stood before God, guilty, shameful, and condemned. And aren't you glad the story doesn't end there? Wouldn't it be discouraging? Wouldn't it be depressing to come to church and say, by the way, hello church, good morning, aren't you glad you're thankful? Everyone who leaves here is guilty and everyone here is condemned. Have a good week, we'll see you next. Wouldn't that be horrible? See, the text in in Genesis doesn't end with the fact that the brothers are quaking in the boots. And the text for us in the Bible doesn't end with the fact that we stand guilty in front of God. God provided a remedy, both for the brothers and for us. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 45. And now, Joseph speaking again, and now do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourself for selling me here again, He reminds them again, he reminds them of the fact that they were selling him here, and um, because it was to save lives that God sent me here ahead of you that Joseph sold in slavery twenty two years ago, wrongly accused by his boss 's wife of of trying to rape her then being neglected inside of an Egyptian prison for a couple of years after being told yeah I'll remember you being lied to at a great cost 22 years later his perspective is it's not the fact that all of these bad things happened to me without reason God did it. God sent me here. See God sent Joseph to save lives from the famine. To save lives from the famine, plural lives, not just, not just Jacob's family, but all the other Egyptians knew nothing about God, who, who worshipped Pharaoh as if he was a living God, and God sent Joseph there to save their life too, which is pretty incredible. See, Joseph fulfills a part of God's promise to Abraham. He fulfills a part of God's promise to Abraham. We've gone through the book of Genesis all year long. And so I'm going to stretch your mind and ask your memory. Do you remember chapter 12 of Genesis? This is like January, February, March. Maybe March we were talking about it. And in that promise, God says this. God says this to Abraham. He says, I will make you into a great nation. He says, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who curses you. I will curse. And there it is, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. All the people on the earth. In other words, Abraham, Abraham, there are going to be people who are going to be blessed because of your faith. That's incredible, isn't it? And this is an application of that. And so Joseph, Joseph fulfills in part the promise that God gave to Abraham. See, there are Egyptians who don't believe in God, probably never will believe in the... God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they eat today because of God's faithfulness to the promise of Abraham. That is pretty amazing when you think about it. You're blessed to be a blessing and Jesus God's promise to Abraham. See, Joseph fulfilled in part because Joseph, he came and he lived and he provided, but he died and, and he could no longer be the fulfillment of the blessing. Jesus came. In a couple of weeks, we'll look at it. He came and he gave his life. He was born of a virgin, gave his life for us, lived a human life, flesh and blood, and then he gave himself up for us. He who knew no sin, he became sin. He he was hung on a tree. He was hung on a cross. He took our sins and he was proclaimed guilty of guilt. And he died. He was buried. And then he was risen three days after that out of the tomb. The tomb was empty. We'll celebrate that come Easter. We'll celebrate the fact that God fulfilled his promise to Abraham through us so that you and I get to be partakers of the blessings but also get to bless others because you have been blessed. You get to share the good things that God has given you with others. Jesus fulfills in God's promise. Jesus fulfills in full God's promise to Abraham. The writer of Hebrews picks up this theme. Hebrews is a great book. We don't know who the author is, but any other New Testament book, he begins it like this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many ways and at many times and in various ways. Would not you say that the story of Joseph is a various way, that God spoke to the past. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through Joseph. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, and through Joseph. Yes, you could say that. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. When we sing songs about a, a very nice, good teacher who 2,000 years ago, lived. or singing songs about a man, a God-man, who God appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Elevate who Jesus is. Sometimes get him off the dusty soil and put him in the throne that he deserves because he made the universe. Jacob's son, let's go back. Jacob's son. Many saw the difficult times as God's judgment and sin. Remember they're quaking in their boots, they're standing in front of in front of Joseph. Joseph's saying, Come close, but, but they're quaking, they don't know what's gonna happen because they saw have had in the past, they saw it because of their sin. They said, Oh, remember Reuben? Reuben said, Hey, this happened because of your sin. I, I told you not to to sell him. Remember the conflict that they had? Remember the they're blaming the difficulties that they had in Egypt because of the sin that they had committed twenty two years ago? And remember, I, I've talked to us about this. Is is sometimes we blame our current situation on on our guilt of our past. That's exactly what they saw. They saw the guilt, and they saw it as a judgment of God. And instead, think of it like this: one person, his name is Joseph. One person saw difficult times as a hand of mercy. How do you evaluate your difficult times, church? Have you ever gone through difficult times? Are you in a difficult time? And uh, if you're in a difficult time, or if you've ever gone through a difficult time, have you put on the filter and said, wow, this is God's hand of mercy on me? Maybe, maybe God, if I trust him, can redeem this painful situation, this challenging moment, this horrible thing for his glory and his goodness. Maybe God can take the pain that I've suffered and allow me if you will, God, to use that to help others grow closer to you. And that's exactly what Joseph does. See, Joseph just doesn't leave it as a difficult time. So sorry, I'm here. I'm, I'm the second in command to Egypt. Tala, farewell, be off. See, God sent Joseph to save the lives of many in a famine. To save the lives of many in the famine. God's grace was greater than just Jacob's family. God's grace was abundant upon the many of the lost and the least and the lonely that were in Egypt that were going to be hungry and hurting. God placed Joseph in those difficult times to lead him to a place that he could help many. God sent. In this passage, we're going to see this repeated again and again. And this is Joseph, full times he's got, as an act of God. And so God sent. Here we go in this passage. It said... It says this. For two years, there had been famine in the land. And for the next five years, this is Joseph speaking, explaining to his brothers, there will be no plowing and reaping. But look, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save the lives by great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here. But God, see, see, they thought that they sent him there. And ultimately, God says, no, that was my plan. That was my chest move. That was my structure. I understood what was going to happen. And I needed somebody there because there was a famine coming. I did it. And, and, and Joseph, God made me the father to Pharaoh, the lord of his entire household, ruler of his earth. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God, once again, God made me Lord over all of Egypt. Come and don't delay. Eleven men there with not much faith. One man here with plenty of faith, sharing and expressing his faith of the difficult times he has gone through to get to his brothers that they don't need to feel guilty. It was God who put him there. The end of the passage will reflect this tremendously. You shall live to give them. So God sent, and now Joseph gets to give them the blessing. Not only did God save them, but God is now going to bless them. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. And you and your children and your grandchildren and your flocks and your herds and all that you have, you bring everybody. Come. And I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. Look at the faith that he has. He knows God. Otherwise... You and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You've got a choice. You can come and you can join me, or you can not have faith and you can go back to Canaan and I'll give you some supplies to be there, but but you're going to be destitute in five years. He comes around his brother Benjamin and wept. Benjamin embraced him and weeping, and he kissed all of his brothers and he wept over them. And afterwards, he talked to his brothers Imagine that scene, just oh big old bear hug. Imagine that that he's just weeping, and now the brothers are starting to weep. The brothers are starting to understand that's Joseph. Oh he's alive. He's in power position, he's going to help. See, God not only sent, but God loves. God embraces us. God embraces us when we're guilty, when we're shameful, when we're condemned. God wants to give us a... And God wants to say, I love you. I love you. I forgive you. All is well. All is well. Don't don't live in guilt. Don't live in shame. Don't live um, playing those tapes of self-condemnation again because I have forgiven you for that. Whatever that is, church. Imagine what would happen if even a small group of believers totally and completely digested this truth, that God doesn't hold your sin against you anymore. You are free. You are not filled with shame, mercy, and kindness, and goodness. Imagine if you didn't walk around condemning yourself, but you walked around with great joy, great peace, knowing you stand before the one who matters. And he hugs you. And he embraces you, and he says, "You're mine. Everything I have, I'm going to share with you now." Let's continue with the passage because it gets great. And when news reached Pharaoh, and so so the weeping happened, and all of a sudden the news that, that the that the men that were here were, were Joseph's brothers. And when the news reached Pharaoh's place that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all of his officials were pleased. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, "Tell your brothers, do this. Load your look." These guys just came for grain. These guys just came for a little bit of grain to last them over the next couple of months. That's it. And and they're they're returning with, with carts and with blessings. So often we come before God and we just say, God, just this little thing, and he's such a big God. And he wants you to know the abundance of his love, the abundance of his generosity. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you can enjoy the fat of the land. As you are also do this, take some of the carts from Egypt for your children and your wives and get your father to come. In other words, your kids don't have to walk back from Canaan to Egypt. They can ride in a cart. They don't have to sit on the back of a donkey. That's, that's, that's no, give them the best. Never mind about your belongings. The best of all of Egypt is yours. So the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, they did this. The Egyptians gave him the carts, and Pharaoh commanded, and he also gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave new clothing, but look at this. But to Benjamin he gave seven and a half pounds of silver and five sets of clothing. Isn't that great? God sent, God loves, God gives. God sent, God loves you, and God gives. For many of us, that is the gift of grace. That is the gift of forgiveness. Better than any material thing you could ever get would be the gift of freedom, the gift of peace, the gift of wholeness. God loves, God sent, God gives. Let's continue because the passage is about ready to close. And I've got a direct application we're going to do this morning. It's one more verse, and it says this. It says, I love that little graphic. It says, and this is what he sent. He's loaded with the best things of Egypt. Ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for the journey. And then he sent his brothers along the way. And, and, and Joseph says, to the brothers, he says, hey, guys, have a good trip. Is that what he says to the brothers? No, he says, hey, don't quarrel along the way. Now, why would the brothers fight? I told you! What? Imagine imagine them, they're just bonking each other on the head. They're going to fight all the way from Egypt to Canaan, and they're going to fight in Canaan because they're brothers, and they're going to fight all the way back. Isn't that what it's going to be like? And Joseph saying, no, no, guys, guys, forget it. It's over with. It's done with. Don't quarrel along the way. And so I've got... Four application points for you this week, with it being Thanksgiving week. You guys ready? First of all, I'm going to ask you to take your cell phones out. Normally, I want you to ignore the cell phones, but if you could take your cell phones out, I want you to do one thing. I'll get to the first one, and the second and third and the fourth is, hey, you're with your family this Thanksgiving week. Don't quarrel, okay? That's one application. Paul says in Philippians, says, do everything without complaining or without arguing. If you're with your family, make it an application point this week to not quarrel with them. You got it? Don't fight with them, Patricia. Don't do it. Um, <laughs> she's going, oh, get him. I have a meeting with him on Tuesday. We'll see how that budget looks. Um, you no, know, Aaron, don't, don't fight with your brothers. Just don't. Make it a point this week to say, you know what? God gave. God sent. God loves. And, and if God can love me and I stand guilty and shamed and condemned and no, in front of him now, I am no longer guilty, shameful, or condemned. I am free. I don't have to quarrel. God has forgiven me. So here's what we do. This week's Thanksgiving challenge for all of us. All of us, first of all, Mark, don't quarrel with your family. Second is Joseph showed grace when he deserved judgment, Joseph showed grace when he deserved judgment. So, I want you to actually this morning text somebody one of the three things we're going to do. I want you to show grace towards somebody this week somebody who, who you know you stand before in judgment, somebody who knows your sins, somebody who knows the bad side of you. Someone who you've been honest with and, and you screwed up. And they have showed you great grace. I want you to maybe send them a text say, Hey, thank you for showing me grace in my life. Thank you for being the hands and the feet and the heart of God. When I blew it, you didn't condemn. Is there anybody in your life who knows your secrets that didn't condemn you anyways? who knows your heart, who knows your flaws, and they choose to love you, if there's somebody in your life who has walked with you through your stupidity, your sinful behavior, your your dumb things you've done, and they've been there, send them a text. Dear whomever, thank you for showing me grace when I shared with you, when I did this, when when I messed up. Who has shown you grace in the flesh? How about the Joseph or the maybe the Josephine who generously gave to you? Is there anybody in your life who has been generous to you? Generous, physically, generous with their wallet, generous with their stuff, generous with their home, their house, their car. Generous to you. This week, today. Send them a thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your generosity with me. It, it, I was in need, and you provided for me. Thank you. Just send them a note of thanks for being I was going to ask you guys to write a note. I was going to say, why don't you write a note using pen and paper and, and a stamp? But no one would ever do that. <laughs> <laughs> your intentions would be good, but then you go, okay, I gotta find a stamp. Where do you get a stamp nowadays? Okay, I gotta find a stamp. You you'd go you, and where's the address? And what is their address? I don't know their address. I don't know. This is way too hard, Pastor Paul. Forget it. But you got their contact in your phone. You can just send them a little thank you for their generosity. They gave you something. And it was something that you needed. Maybe maybe you're a young person and you've lived in your parent's house for a long time and and you just need to thank him for that. Maybe friend, you had a need and and they met it. Remind them of how they showed generosity to you. And a third one is to the Joseph or the Josephine in your life who helped you grow spiritually. who pointed out God's leading in your life. To the person who led you to faith. To the person that introduced you to Jesus, to the person that has helped you walk along the journey in faith, say thank you. Thank you for helping me grow spiritually. Thank you for caring for me enough to invest your time. Last year, as a sermon, the cup thing, where we challenged, I challenge you to be involved in a discipleship relationship, investing in other people now's the time to say thank you for somebody investing into you. How has somebody helped you grow spiritually? How has somebody walked with you? How has somebody prayed for you? Is there any time that someone just prayed for you and you felt that was what you needed at that moment? Thank you for being the Joseph in my life and praying for me when I needed it. Because you prayed, God answered. And because God answered, I'm in a better spot today. Imagine, church, We have the capabilities, there's probably 35, 40 of us here, to connect with 480. 120 people can be blessed. You, because you are blessed, can be a blessing to others today. Imagine a little church making a 120 people impact this week. You're going to do three things this week. You're going to thank somebody for their grace that they have shared with you. We've all screwed up. We've all done it. And there's been people that walk along the journey with us. So th- say thank you to them for sharing the grace. Thank you for their generosity, for the fact that they gave to you when you had a need, for leadership in their life. You know, this week we get to say thank you to God for the privilege of living in this great country. And it is a great country. We get the privilege of seeing its flaws so many times. But look, we're worshiping in a building that has air conditioning. We're worshiping in a building that's safe. We're worshiping with people. And we don't have to worry about people coming in and disrupting the service. In the Dominican Republic, when Amy and I were there, went to a church. The windows were non-existent. The air conditioning, there was no such thing smelled like cow manure outside. You'd hear the goats and the pigs. The pews weren't slats of wood. The walls had flaky paint. And it was just a dilapidated building. We have so much to be thankful for. God has blessed us in this country in so many ways. So, church, give thanks to God for the fact that you live in this great country. Pray for our president. Pray for our leaders that they would do the right and noble thing. Pray for me as a pastor and pray for the churches that we would do the right thing as well. And pray for your other church members that they would give thanks on Thanksgiving. Forging on turkey. Okay? Let's give thanks. Lord, thank you for this morning. For these men and these women who have come here this morning to be reminded about how you gave, you sent, you directed like a chess piece, Lord. You sent, and we are part of the giant puzzle that we don't quite and we can't grasp intellectually, Lord. So by faith, we accept it. Lord, if there is anyone in this room who, they've never accepted you. They, they've come to church, but they've never given their heart to you. Lord, I pray that they would do so today. They would ask you to come and live with them and be part of their life. Thank-filled for the goodness that you have. The fact that you don't condemn them, but you love them and you've embraced them. And you've called them to be conduits of blessings towards others. Lord, I pray that this church today would give thanks to the people that have had an impact in our life. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to participate in this, the worship of your Son. Amen.